Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. A serialized non-fiction podcast that chronicles the story of 15-year-old Adrian Wilson's 147-day battle with primary liver cancer. As she lay dying, Adrian taught others, including her older sister Andrea, who raised her, how to live. Welcome back to Better Off Ball, the Life in 147 Days. I am your host and storyteller, Andrea Wilson-Woods. Whether you're watching the video or listening to the podcast, I really appreciate you tuning in. And this is the first episode that I have filmed since the video series and podcast series has gone live. So if you're one of my very first viewers and or listeners, thank you so much and thank you for sharing. And it's meant so much to me to see those podcast downloads and subscribes and I really am just thrilled. Thank you. So let's get started. Days 41 through 44, Monday through Thursday, June 25th through the 28th, 2001. Three smiley faces, i.e. bowel movements. Every fucking moment after this cancer is dead, I am going to be alive. I'm going to every fucking weekend show I can afford. I'm going to theme parks and swimming pools, taking hiking trips and camping adventures. I'm going to mingle with club goers. I'm going to be friends with Mr. Navarro and Jane will play a private show in my living room. I will be reborn. I will fight this, pills and all, and it will not kill me. I will be drop dead gorgeous even if I don't have hair. I will help people who have to go through this. I will be amazing and impossible to avoid. All of this shit is temporary. Pain is not real. Cancer does not survive in me. Adrian's journal entry dated June 28th, 2001. Adrian's blood counts recovered quickly, but the numbers are not as high as before. In three days, the Nubigen does its job, shooting her WBC and ANC through the roof. However, her hemoglobin remains low. What did the nurse say in our parent orientation class? If the hemoglobin is nine or below or in that range, I realize Adrian will need a blood transfusion soon. I decide not to ask the doctors about it. The less time Adrian spends at the hospital, the better. I receive an unexpected phone call. A producer I know from a previous job is working on a new version of the game show Card Sharks. She offers me a spot as a contestant. I agree to do it because the grand prize is cash, up to $50,000. The numbers dance in my head as I think of all the possibilities fly to another country to get Adrian different drugs, travel to Ireland so Adrian can see real sheep, hire Dave Navarro to jam with Adrian at our house, maybe even find a cure. With Jared watching Adrian, I leave early in the morning to go to the studio. The production assistant, PA, shows us old episodes of Card Sharks and gives us a tour of the set. Then we wait. I brought one of my mini cancer books to read. Someone asked about the book. I tell him about Adrian. 
What's the prognosis, he asked. My lower lip trembles. Why do people ask that question? If the prognosis were good, I would have told you already. Not great, I say, as I turn back into my book. By lunchtime, we have not taped a single episode. The PA apologizes. First day, she says, some technical difficulties. By two o'clock, two people from our small group are selected to be contestants in the first taping. We watch on a monitor. Similar to the card game war I played as a kid, card sharks is mostly luck mixed with a little strategy. Is the next card going to be higher or lower? Asked the host. The audience screams, higher. Winning this game will be the easiest thing I've done all week. All I have to do is count the cards. I'm more competitive than anyone I know. Mother stopped playing card games with me because she said, you play too much like your father, out for blood. Isn't that the point, to win? At a holiday party a few years ago, my team demolished the other team in what was supposed to be a friendly game of taboo. Jumping up and down, I taunted the losers. We killed you guys, killed. No one in that group ever played taboo with me again. The next two people are called in for the second taping. I watched the clock. Past three. We're running out of time. We were supposed to be done by four. At a quarter till, the PA rushes in. I'm sorry, guys. We're out of time. You've got to be kidding me. Out of time, I say? I spend the entire day away from my sick child, and all you can say is we're out of time? The PA looks contrite. Oh, you can definitely come back for the next taping on another day. Don't worry, you'll be on the show. You think I would come back and waste another day waiting to be on this show? Forget it. Fuck you for wasting my time. My shoes slap against the thin carpet as I stomp down the stairs. I know it's not the PA's fault. She doesn't understand. All I can give Adrian is my time. Neglect, to give little attention, to leave unattended. The older Adrian got, the less time our mother gave her. By age six, she ran wild around their neighborhood, playing in the nearby woods, hiding in the gutters, and swimming unattended in the community pool. I taught Adrian how to swim after seeing a special on a news show, maybe it was 60 minutes. With her diapers soaking up every ounce of water, a 14-month-old Adrian kicked her feet and breathed underwater like the show said she would. Since she was a natural fish, I'm sure our mother never worried about her swimming alone. Mother forgot fish swim fast to get away from predators. Adrian told me about their neighbor, a man named Mark. He approached her in the swimming pool. He was probably friendly at first. When I pushed Adrian to describe him to me, all she said was he wasn't too young or too old. He touched her on more than one occasion, and she knew it wasn't right. Playing unsupervised and having a mother who didn't believe her story, Adrian was perfect bait for the worst type of predator, a pedophile. Adrian didn't tell me about Mark until she came to live with me. She was being stubborn, refusing to take a shower before bedtime. She had practically glued her arms to her side. When my boyfriend, Dan, innocently helped me pull her shirt over her head, a low, painful sound escaped the back of her throat before Adrian began wailing at the top of her lungs. 
Bewildered, Dan backed off and left the room. I held a shaking Adrian as she sobbed uncontrollably. When I pressed her about the extreme reaction, the Mark molestation story came pouring out of her. At that moment, I wanted to kill two people. First Mark, then our mother. A letter from the Social Security Administration arrives in the mail. Last week, I was approved to be the payee for Adrian's Social Security check and the first deposit of $672 will hit her savings account on July 1st. Even though the money is legally hers, it doesn't feel real yet. Adrian reads the letter. $672? Wow, we've never had money before. It's your money, kiddo, but you can only spend it on food, clothing, or medical stuff not covered by insurance. We have to keep track of every penny. You mean I can buy new clothes? She smiles. Yeah, you sure can. I smile too. Damn mother. I've sewn the tear in Adrian's favorite black pants at least two times because I couldn't afford to buy her a new pair. We shop at thrift stores where Adrian will deck her head if she sees someone from school. Now if Adrian needs something, she can get it with her own money. I should have realized when we got a letter, our mother got one too telling her the money train has stopped. When the phone rings a few days later, I am unprepared for her nastiness. She doesn't bother to say hello. So you found out, Mother says, snarling the word found. That's all you have to say? I did nothing wrong. I got Adrian's money. I was saving it for her. The hell you were. You stole her money. How does it feel stealing from your own daughter? That's my money, Andra. My money. I did nothing wrong. Then the obscenities begin. <laughs> Once again, I talk over her, but I doubt she hears my goodbye over her own voice. I hang up. Adrian looks over at me from the chair. Mother, she asks. Yep. Don't worry, sissy. She won't call back. I nod as I grit my teeth. Was it worth it, Mother? I wonder how much our love is worth. Despite feeling nauseated in the morning, on Tuesday, Adrian wants to get out of the house. First, we go to Victoria's Secret, VS, to buy her a new bra. Adrian will finally have a nice, expensive bra that fits her properly. The saleswoman helping us seems to ignore Adrian's almost bald head, pale skin, and hollow eyes. Adrian explains she needs extra room to tuck her central line into her bra. The woman nods as if she hears this request all the time. Adrian walks out swinging the characteristic pink VS bag, which holds her new convertible strapless bra wrapped in pink tissue. We eat lunch at Krabby Bob's, a local seafood restaurant near the Burbank Mall. For the first time, Adrian and I decide to eat crab legs. We both love crab meat, but we've never ordered crab legs before. What are these for? I ask when the waitress hands us plastic bibs. Trust me, you're going to need them, she says. When our food arrives, Adrian giggles. How are we going to eat all this, sissy? The oval-shaped platter is filled with mashed potatoes and steamed mixed vegetables with a side of hush puppies. The crab legs lie on top, begging us to eat them first. Hold on, says our waitress. I'll be right back with your bucket. 
Adrian grabs a crab leg and stares at it as butter drips down her bib. How do we eat this? She asks me. I have no idea. I look at the tool between our plates. I remember Julia Roberts' character in the movie Pretty Woman when she tries to eat escargot and it goes flying off the table. I look around. The restaurant is almost empty, but I don't want to make a scene. Then the waitress brings the bucket. Um, look, we've never done this before. Can you show us how to eat crab legs? Oh, sure. The waitress demonstrates how to use the tool to crack open the shell. Some people just suck the meat out, but you can pull it out too, like this. She shows us how the small fork is designed to grab the thin piece of meat. She tells us to toss the shells in the bucket. Adrian dives in, mastering the art of eating crab legs on her first try. Even as we're having fun tackling our lunch, I watch her closely. Adrian has not been in any pain today, but too much food causes heartburn. I push her to eat some vegetables so she will be able to go to the bathroom later. She knows why I'm doing it, but we don't talk about it. Instead, we relish this moment, eating crab legs together for the first time, making a huge mess on the table and ourselves. I ignore the pain in my heart, caused not by food, but a deep feeling. This may be the first and last time, the one and only time there may be no next time. I order more books, more ammunition to fight the faceless enemy. I choose American Cancer Society's Consumer Guide to Cancer Drugs, Dr. Rosenfeld's Guide to Alternative Medicine, and Cancer Clinical Trials, Experimental Treatments and How They Can Help You. The other books I read taught me what liver cancer was. These books will teach me how to beat it, kill it. I'm playing the most important game in my life. Although not as competitive as me, Adrian also plays to win. She beat our brother Aiden at Monopoly when she was only 10. He was 21. I was so proud of her. Then I remember the name of her website where I now post updates about her progress. Adrian kicks cancer's ass. Yeah, she's out to win. She's the one who saw a TV commercial for Cancer Treatment Centers of America and wrote down the number, not me. I called, but when I discovered both centers were out of state, Adrian dismissed the idea. She refuses to be away from her family and friends. We must stay in LA, she said. Adrian won't let cancer win. Fuck you, no change. Diana visits Adrian every week, even though their therapy sessions have ceased. Whether we're at the hospital or at home, Diana makes time for Adrian and me. I tell her about Adrian's low-grade fevers every night this week while Adrian focuses on our upcoming trip to Arizona. We are leaving on Friday if the doctor says it's okay. After 18 months of therapy, Diana seems certain Adrian's desire to commit suicide had waned even if she was still somewhat depressed. I asked Adrian if she still wanted to keep seeing her psycho doctor. Sure, I like Diana. It's nice having someone to talk to. So Diana remains in our lives. I remind Diana about the Christmas tree incident of 1998. Adrian and I had a huge fight. I wanted a particular tree in the lot, a tall, noble fir, perfectly shaped like a cone. Adrian didn't like it and John didn't care. We finally agreed I would select the tree, but Adrian would decide how to decorate it. 
However, when she placed the large round ornaments near the top, I cringed. I corrected her. The round ornaments should go from smallest to largest from top to bottom. Adrian snapped at me. Sissy, we had a deal. I get to do it my way. Now, butt out. John backed her up. You did make a deal. Just let her decorate the tree already. I hated our tree that year. The Christmas tree incident almost ruined our holidays. Afterward, I asked Diana in one of our few family sessions how we could have handled it better. Her solution was simple. Give Adrian her own tree for her own room the following year. Adrian loved the idea. I don't know why we didn't think of it ourselves, but sometimes an objective professional opinion is what a family needs. Now Diana and I laugh about something that once seemed so important. Adrian didn't even want her own tree last year because she didn't care anymore. At 14, she had more important things to do than decorate a tree. Looking back, I can't believe we argued over a damn Christmas tree. I want that tree now. That stupid tree because it represents normality, stubbornness, and most of all, it reminds me of the way things were. Adrian wants to change her hair before we go to Arizona. She has grown tired of the one quarter inch growth on the left side of her head and the one sixteenth inch growth on the right side of her head, complemented by the clean bald patch above her right eye where she and Eli pulled out a chunk of one of her former mohawks. Adrian is always changing her hair, ever since I allowed her to dye it bright red when she turned 14 last year. She wanted to dye it when she was 12, but I said no. If you want it that bad, you can wait two years, I said. Not only did I make her wait, but I also mandated she never dye her hair black. I had known too many people who said black never washed out, and it ruined their hair. She agreed to my conditions. I was hoping she would forget about dyeing her hair, but of course she didn't. On her 14th birthday, she requested a dye job as her present. Adrian took it one step further, though. First, she asked our hairdresser to shave the back of her head up to an imaginary line between the tips of her ears. I almost protested, but I had promised her she could do anything she wanted with her hair. I didn't want a repeat of the Christmas tree incident. My hair's too thick, sissy. It makes me hot. This way I'll be cooler. Yeah, and you'll have no hair on the back of your head. Since her hair was dark brown, our hairdresser bleached it first before applying two bottles of Manic Panic Red Passion Semi-Permanent Color Cream. As an added bonus, she blow-dried Adrian's hair and put it in two pigtails. Cool! I look like one of the characters from Sailor Moon, her favorite animated show when she was younger. Her enthusiasm brought a smile to my face, even though I knew she would be judged now as a punk kid because of her new goth fairy-like appearance. If I had told Adrian my opinion, she would have been thrilled. She loves fairies. However, looking like a Japanese anime character, even a warrior whose destiny is to save the world, does not make the best first impression, which matters despite what people say. Let's nair my head, sissy. That's got to get rid of the rest of what's left, says Adrian. Concerned about an allergic reaction, I do a skin test first. I dab a small dollop of nair on the bald patch, which is about the size of a 50-cent coin. We wait the required 10 minutes before I wipe it off. Nothing. Not even redness. Adrian says, let's do it. I draw her bath and secure her central line in the Ziploc bag before taping it to her chest. 
Adrian thinks I should scrub her scalp first to loosen up the hair follicles. Using a bit of shampoo, I massage her head with my fingers, doing my best to convince her many stubborn strands of hair to let go. They hold on tight, but Adrian believes Nair will do the trick. After rinsing her head and using a towel to absorb any remaining moisture, I apply a thick layer of Nair and we wait again. The smell of Nair reminds me of every bad perm I've ever gotten. This better work, says Adrian. This stuff stinks. I wipe off the Nair with a washcloth and rinse Adrian's scalp again. Well, you still have hair, kiddo. You must be the only cancer patient who ever wants her hair just to go ahead and fall out, but it won't. Damn, I thought that would work. I let the cuss word go, even though Adrian knows I prefer she not use that language around me. Keep me in denial, I said to her once. I don't want to hear it. I don't forbid her from swearing because then I would be a hypocrite. Driving in traffic, the words coming out of my mouth, move your ass, motherfucker, don't set the best example. Moreover, I believe deeming words unspeakable only gives them more power. Besides, I was thinking the same thing. Damn, I thought the nair would work. Thank you for watching and listening to Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. Please subscribe to my channel and stay tuned for the next episode. You just heard a chapter from Better Off Ball, A Life in 147 Days, a story told and written by Andrea Wilson Woods. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast, share it with your friends, and leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening. <laughs>